Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Peter Singer. Peter is often called the father of the modern animal welfare movement and was named one of the most influential people in the world by Time magazine. He is an Australian philosopher and a professor of bioethics at Princeton. He's contributed to more than 50 books in over 30 languages, and he's the founder of The Life You Can Save, a nonprofit which you can find online that recommends various effective charities. And his seminal book, Animal Liberation, has been revised and published under the title Animal Liberation Now, which is the main topic of discussion today. We talk about the moral status of non-human animals, the ethics of moral hierarchies, speciesism, the scale of animal suffering, animal experimentation, the tragic case of Sam Bankman-Fried, some concerns about effective altruism, the problems with focusing on existential risk, the comparative nature of human suffering, the important work of Derek Parfit, whether there are objective claims to make about right and wrong and good and evil, and other topics. I should say on the topic of effective altruism, both Peter and I continue to support it, just with um, various shadings and caveats. The crucial thing for me is that systematizing one's philanthropy seems like an objectively good idea. Deciding, for instance, to give 10% of one's pre-tax income away each year to the most effective charities, uh, that seems like a good thing, and in my experience, it's a fairly revolutionary thing to do in one's life. As many of you know, I took that pledge through Will McCaskill's organization, Given What We Can, and uh, I've since heard from Will that over 10% of the members who have taken that pledge have referenced this podcast in their explanation of why they decided to do that, and that represents over $300 million in pledged donations, which is amazing. And Will tells me that even on a conservative basis, which takes into account pledge attrition, as well as how much would have been given away anyway, and factors time discounting, that's worth at least $20 million in present value to top charities. So that's fantastic. Of course, this is the time of year where many people think about giving. So if you want some recommendations there, I suggest you check out Giving What We Can and Give Well. You can see the charities we support at the Waking Up Foundation over at wakingup.com slash foundation. And you can also consult Peter Singer's organization, The Life You Can Save, which also recommends effective charities. And now I bring you Peter Singer. I am with Peter Singer. Peter, thanks for joining me again. It's my pleasure, Sam. So you have um, two books, uh, two newish books. One is a, um, a revision of your classic Animal Liberation. Animal Liberation Now is the current title. Um, and then you have a new book coming out, which I haven't read, uh, The Buddhist and the Ethicist. And we can talk about, I want to talk about both of those, but let's jump into Animal Liberation Now because it's, um, remind me, the book first came out in 71? 1975. 75. Book, uh, yeah. came out. Yeah, that's right. So it's not quite 50 years for the book. It's 50 years since I first actually published something on this topic, which was an article called Animal Liberation in the New York Review of Books in April 1973. Right. Okay. Well, that has been 
you, you tell me, I, I, you're often credited as being the, the real father of the animal rights movement. Um, you know, you detail in the book some of the, the history of our callousness toward animals and how we made some moral progress, however incremental. What was your experience as a philosopher writing a book of such compelling social importance? And that's not the common experience of academic philosophers. So tell me what, what happened to your life when you wrote that book. Yes, well, it was very interesting because I really had no idea what it would do to my philosophy career at that stage, which was really just beginning. And philosophy was just on the cusp of coming out of this ordinary language mode of philosophy, as it was sometimes called, or linguistic philosophy. And some of the leading philosophers in that area had expressed the idea that philosophy really has nothing to say about what is right or wrong, um, doesn't give advice in ethics. A.J. Eyre, who was a very prominent philosopher at the time, said, uh, that's the business of the politician or the preacher. Mm. We should leave it to them. But what I was trying to do was to write something that would be both intelligible to ordinary people but still of philosophical interest. And I wasn't really sure whether that was possible, but I was so compelled by the need to write this book that in a way, you know, if it had harmed my career in philosophy, well, I could see myself having had a career as an animal activist, I suppose. But fortunately, the, the reaction was actually very good from philosophers, at least a few of them. I don't know. The, the ones who wrote about it mostly welcomed it. Uh, there were a couple who, who ridiculed it, but most of them said, you know, yes, this is important and philosophy should get back on track. You know, in, the, in the 1970s, as I say, it was on the cusp of change because there were other philosophers who wanted to discuss, for example, the war in Vietnam, the right to civil disobedience, and of course, the civil rights movement, which had been unfolding in the United States for a, more than a decade prior to that point. And what was your experience of, because, you know, the, subsequent to your publication of this book, you have been um, no stranger to controversy. I mean, you, you're, you're a, um, unlike almost anyone else in your line of work, you're often noticed by the, the wider public in terms of how your arguments brush up against concerns about public policy and things like euthanasia. And we'll get into some of the, the reasons why, and we'll talk about the, the foundations of, of your ethics. But what has been the experience of, of being an academic philosopher whose work is so often cited to resolve or to uh, confound questions of public policy? Well, I've certainly enjoyed it. Um, I've, I've felt it was important, if you're writing in ethics, to contribute to some of the deeper ethical questions that you know, underlie our decisions about life and death, for example, about what we eat, about what we do with our spare cash? Those are all important questions, and to some extent, they're, they're novel questions in that they're being asked in a different world from the world of a century or two ago. So, to me, it's it's been in a way the stimulus to work hard in mm. ethics and philosophy that I can have an influence, and that these are important questions. I'm not just writing for my fellow philosophers to read and ponder and write replies to. Um, also trying to change the world for the better. And mm. that's a huge motivating factor. Yeah, well, um, I share that aspiration. And I should say that your, your work has been very influential in my life, both directly and also 
as a result of the, the other people you have influenced who have in turn influenced me, people like Will McCaskill. So you, you're, you're also credited with being, uh, in some ways, the, the, uh, the father of the effective altruism movement, uh, which has suffered some PR wounds of late. Uh, we can talk about yes. that. I mean, we, Sam Bankman-Fried was also on this podcast uh, back in the day. <laughs> so right. um, I'd love to get into all that. But let, let's talk about the revised book, Animal Liberation Now, and your central argument against what you describe as speciesism. Just uh, kind of make the case here in, over the course of a few minutes. What, what, what is our current prejudice as you see it? And what do you think is, would be ethically normative? And how do we get there? Right. Well, I think our current prejudice still is that members of our species, members of the species Homo sapien, have automatically, and just being in virtue, just in virtue of being a member of that species, have a higher moral status than any other beings, and that that means that we are entitled to use other beings for our own ends, even when those ends are not absolute necessities, even when they're not saving our life. But for example, because we prefer a particular taste, a particular kind of food, that that entitles us to uh, rear and then kill vast numbers of animals and not even to give them minimally decent lives, but to lock them in huge sheds by the thousands or even tens of thousands in the case of chickens, just to produce their flesh more cheaply than we would be able to do if we gave them a life that is more normal for them in a flock of 30 or 40 hens or chickens maybe and running around outside. So that I think is a prejudice and I use the term speciesism, which I didn't invent but I found in a leaflet published in the early 1970s by a man called Richard Ryder. And, and I, to me when I saw that word, it, it's like a light bulb went on. Yes, there is something going on here that is parallel to racism or to sexism or some of the other isms that we reject. I say parallel, it's not exactly the same, obviously, but in, in all of these cases, we have a group that is able to be dominant over others. So in, at least in, say, in the 18th century, when the slave trade was at its height, that group was Europeans who had technology that Africans did not have and could capture or, or buy Africans, send them on a horrible voyage across the Atlantic in a ship and um, sell them into slavery. And obviously, you know, they could do that because they had that technology. And then they developed an ideology which justified it. The idea that Europeans are superior, maybe that, uh, you know, we were even helping these Africans by Christianizing them and then saving their souls. Or finding verses in the Bible that justify what we're doing. You know, there were slaves in, referred to in the Old Testament. And similarly with, with men over women, uh, there's also an ideology that this is, it's natural for women to be subordinate to men, and so women were denied equality in terms of, certainly in politics, they didn't have the right to vote. In uh, some countries, they did not have the right to own property. If they were married, their property automatically all belonged to their husbands. So when it comes to animals, we have the same attitude. We are dominant over them. We can do all kinds of things to them that they cannot really resist. And we justify that with, uh, again, an ideology, and the ideolo ideology might 
once again be a religious one. You know, it says in the book of Genesis that God gave us dominion over the animals, so they're ours to do as we please with. Or it might be that um, this is a natural arrangement in some way. We've always done this, and therefore it must be okay. But again, I think it's it's unjustifiable to think that species membership somehow makes a crucial moral difference. That um, you know, just as being we now recognise that being of one race or another or one sex or another does not give one a right to rule over the the other. So I think we should recognise that being of uh, the human species does not mean that whatever your interests are override the interests of another sentient being, that is another being who can feel pain, whose life could go well or badly, and whose pain, you know, humans should not be ignoring. We should be saying, yes, pain is pain. It matters just as much whether it's experienced by a human or a cow or a dog or a chimpanzee. What matters is how severe the pain is or how great the suffering is, or, um, but not what species is this being who is suffering. Well, I think most people have a, a natural or you know, culturally acquired intuition that there is a moral hierarchy here. Uh, I often think about this in terms of what I'm now going to dub as the windshield test. I mean, if, if you're driving home in a car and a bug splatters on the windshield, you may not feel much of anything about it. I mean, it's, not, it's certainly not a moral emergency. And the absence of feeling there is based on an intuition, however inchoate, that not much has really happened, all things considered. You have not, this is not a tragedy that uh, you, you have to spend the rest of your life trying to figure out how to uh, find some emotional equanimity over because you don't attribute that much sentience or, or re- perhaps any sentience to bugs, right? So if right. I say it's a bee, and this is both positively and negatively valenced, right? So it's in terms of their, uh, their capacity to suffer, if it exists at all, you, you, you must imagine it's minuscule compared to uh, that of more you know, complex animals and certainly compared to humans. And in terms of the type of happiness they might have enjoyed, but for the fact that they came into contact with your speeding car, the loss of opportunity for that enjoyment is also not a tragedy. But as you move up the hierarchy, you know, phylogenetically, as you, you know, if you run over a squirrel or somebody's dog, or in the worst possible case, a a person, what you recognize there with each step up is kind of the wider implications of suffering and deprivations of happiness and also the you know the social context in which that may or may not be happening so with a dog you you immediately think of, of the the owner of the dog and the suffering of of, the, of that person and and the and the family etc and with a person if you if you run over somebody's child this is the sort of you know life deranging catastrophe that you know you you may never get over given its implications now Part of your argument suggests that that uh, moral hierarchy is not ethically defensible, or at least not fully defensible as given, or, or if we're going to defend it by reference to capacities, capacities for suffering and capacities for happiness, we have to recognize that those capacities don't, in every individual case, track the boundaries between species. So just react to my intuitive sense of 
there being a moral hierarchy here and, and how one might justify it or not? Well, I, I think what you said is really compatible with what I said before. I said that pain is pain and it doesn't matter what the species is. What matters is how much they're being suffered. Now, what you're suggesting is that a bug that uh, hits our windscreen may not be capable of suffering at all. And I agree, that's, it's certainly, we can't be certain that insects feel pain. And if it does suffer, then we assume that the suffering is in some way less than ours, that the capacities for suffering are, are far less. You know, the bug has far fewer, vastly fewer neurons than we have and uh, you know, may not suffer at all or may have a, a quite different kind of suffering that is less than ours. So I think that's what, that's what we hope is going on. And if we get up to, you said, do you hit a squirrel or, or a dog perhaps? I think if we do that and we, get, we stop the car, hopefully, and we see the animal is injured um, and not dead and presumably suffering from the injury, I hope we would be concerned about that. And if we think the injury is serious and probably this animal is not going to survive, I hope we do something about it, actually. You know, and maybe people would be reluctant to do this, but I hope that we find a big piece of wood or a, or a rock and we crush the squirrel's head so that the squirrel is not going to have a slow, drawn-out death. Because I don't think in the case of a squirrel or, or even a dog, really, it's the killing that is so significant because I don't think that they are beings who, like us, live as much over time, have a sense of their biographical life and, and have hopes about what they're going to do in the future in the way we do. So I think that if we're just talking about the fact that a being is killed, those cognitive differences are morally significant. But if we are talking about the pain that they're feeling, then I think they're less significant. They, they may, of course, as in the case of the bug and possibly in the case of the squirrel and the dog too, there may be lesser capacities for pain, but I think we're on pretty shaky ground if we assume that with other birds and mammals that there is a lesser capacity for pain than we have. It might be a different capacity. It might be different things that make them suffer. But I think most people who live with dogs would think that their dogs are certainly capable of suffering quite acutely in some circumstances. Mm. But one of the implications of your argument is that these distinctions cannot be made neatly at the, the species boundary. So, for instance, if we had a, I think you use an example of a, an encephalic child, you know, a child born without a, a cerebrum, you know, just with a, a brainstem keeping uh, the child alive, but, you know, there's, there's zero hope of a, a fully human existence and uh, probably no reason to attribute consciousness to that child. This is a human child, but not one destined to become a person, really. And uh, our intuition is that still this child is, you know, however compromised, is, is more important than any non-human animal by virtue of her humanness. And your argument seems to cut across that because if we're going, to, if suffering really is the point, if sentience is the point, and if we want to to extend that by reference to various mental capacities, I mean, you just just added this this sense of you know biographical continuity in time and you know future expectations of the future. If that you know further elaborates one's capacity for suffering and, and happiness, well, then this child is not the locus of any of that and, and never will be. And therefore, 
has to be morally less important than any fully intact dog or squirrel or chimpanzee. So the, the, these distinctions do kind of run roughshod over any kind of species boundary. Yes, that's correct. In a way, that's the, the other side of my view about species not counting. On the one hand, it means that non-human animals, at least those capable of, of suffering or enjoying their lives, matter more than we generally attribute the significance of their pain or suffering. And on the other hand, the idea of the equal value of all life or of the lives of all members of the species Homo sapien is also criticized by the view that I take. Because, mm-hmm. as you correctly point out, if there is a child who, an anencephalic infant, has only a brain stem, they don't have the rest of the brain, they're not brain dead because there is a functioning brain stem, and that means you know, they, can, they can breathe and the heart beats, but uh, they will never be conscious. So I think that actually their, their life in itself has less significance or importance than the life of a, a dog or a cow or a pig because those beings can experience things and can have good lives or bad lives from their perspective. Now, I say with the, with the infant, taken in itself. If the parents uh, somehow want this child to live and want it to be treated, well, that's another factor to consider. But the example I give in the book, which I think I use to illustrate how far we go in this speciesism, is one of a baby who was born with anencephaly. And the parents actually recognizing that this was a tragedy and understanding correctly that their child would never become a, a, a person, would never recognize her mother or smile at her mother, wanted something positive to come out of this. And so they asked if the babies could be an organ donor and if her organs could be given to, for example, a, a, another baby who was born with a major heart defect, as occasionally happens. And, and when babies are born with, with uh, heart defects, with what's sometimes called a hole in the heart, it's very hard to get organs for them because, of course, there are very few babies who, who um, die or injured, say, in a car accident and are brain dead and from whose hearts might then be removed. So there, there was some potential for some, something good to come out of this. But the hospital said they couldn't do it because that would be killing a human being. And the parents even went to court to try to get that overruled, but the judge said the same. You can't cut the heart out of a living human being, mm. even if that human being has absolutely no potential to ever become a person, to ever walk around and enjoy their lives or experiencing anything. On the other hand, we do, of course, experiment on animals all the time, including uh, removing their hearts and trying to do transplants of their organs, trying to overcome the rejection that typically follows if you take an organ from one species and transplant it into another. And, and we do this with a variety of animals including baboons it's been done with and it has been done with a chimpanzee as well, you know, w- without recognizing that, well, this being is, is far more conscious, far more aware of the world, far, has far more of a life to live than uh, the anencephalic baby. Yeah, well, th- this actually connects to some other useful fictions, or, which, um, I mean, so when you discussed this early in the book, you say that this notion that all humans are equally valuable it's not a statement of fact. It's a prescription for how we should treat other human beings. 
And um, so this is a a statement of political equality, and it is in some sense just a, a heuristic for fairness and justice and arranging a sane society under some quasi-Rawlsian principle of that's, that's going to ensure the best outcomes for most of us most of the time. But it's not strictly true, and it's not strictly true even in uh, situations quite a bit divorced from what we're currently discussing. So you just imagine like a hostage situation where a, a U.S. president is one of the hostages. Well, the, no one imagines that that is going to be treated the same way as any other routine hostage situation. Right. The, the U.S. president is going to be treated as more valuable given his or her role in the world and et cetera. And, and no one's going to think it's a total derangement of our ethics, or few people will think it's a total derangement of our ethics, for us to be prioritizing saving the president of the United States over any random person who may need their life saved on any given Thursday. So this notion that all human beings are equally valuable is not something that we can strictly factually defend, but I think there is a... It struck me in, in reading your book that there, one analogy came to mind, which, um, uh, again, it's just a heuristic, but it's, it, it, may, it may be ethically justifiable. I, I, one question, have you, Peter, have you ever spent much time firing guns or you know, working with firearms? In I, I have not, no. Okay. <laughs> this okay. is a bit of an American obsession, I think, and yeah, I yeah. did not grow up in the United States. So then I'll just uh, briefly educate you. So the, the, when you're working with firearms, there is a dogma that uh, one is wise to always observe, which is to treat a gun as though it is always loaded, right? And even if you, you know, if you're handing me a gun, you will check to see that it's loaded and you'll check in, in a way that is quite redundant. I mean, it really is a kind of an, an acquired obsessive compulsive disorder. I mean, you'll look into the chamber and you'll look at, you'll look to see that there's no magazine in it. And then you'll look into the chamber again, and then you'll look to see that there's no mag magazine in it. And you might even do that a third time before handing me the gun. And even if I have just watched you do that, I too will check to ensure that the gun isn't loaded. And even once it's been established that it's not loaded, I will still treat it as though it is loaded, which is to say I won't randomly point it in your direction or, or in the direction of any living being that I, I, that I w wouldn't want to put at risk, right? So that kind of discipline is the only thing that ensures that as you spend more and more time around guns, the probability that you are going to get uh, killed or injured by them inadvertently uh, or kill and injure somebody else isn't going to increase intolerably over the, over the months and years. But it is, in fact, true that when, you know, if you have just handed me a gun, which I've watched you check to see whether or not it's loaded, and I've checked it once and I've checked it twice, it's not true that I actually believe the gun might still be loaded. I, I've, I know it's not loaded. I've seen you check it. I've checked it once. And now when I'm checking it again, I'm engaged in a kind of religious ritual, right? And yet, it is a truly wise one that has consequences in the real world. And, and to not observe this kind of redundancy, you know, has obviously negative consequences. And every you know, negligent discharge of a firearm that results in the injury or death of some innocent person is always the result of a failure to practice this kind of obsessive attention to this sort of detail. So th this analogy occurred to me in defense of something like speciesism with respect to people. And so it's the valuing of a life 
that we know is not actually valuable in the case of a human being is a kind of bulwark, you know, an attitudinal bulwark against some of just the, the most obscene departures from normativity we, we know we've, we've accomplished in our past. I mean, when you just look at the, you know, the Nazi doctors or, you know, the, the Nazis prior to the Holocaust in full swing just deciding, okay, well, it's time to sterilize all of these you know, men, you know, mental defectives. And, you know, now that we're sterilizing them, why, why don't we just start killing them en masse because these aren't lives worth living? I mean, there's, there's a slide into evil which could be prevented if you just had this sort of blind heuristic, which is to value human life simply because it is human at every stage of its capacity, whatever its individual capacities. Um, I just wanted, I just wanted to get your reaction to that. Yes, that argument um, was widely used in the debate about voluntary euthanasia when it first got started in the Netherlands in the 1980s, uh, when doctors began assisting patients to die on their request, and the courts allowed them to do that, saying that they faced a conflict of duties because of the unbearable suffering of their patients. And many opponents said, this is going to lead to a slippery slope. We will end up killing off people who are you know, regarded as useless or intellectually disabled or even politically undesirable. And that argument in the early 1980s perhaps seemed to have some weight. It was something of an unknown. We were not familiar with the idea of the legal or open performance of uh, voluntary euthanasia or medically assisted dying. Actually, Peter, let me just add one caveat to it because it, it never occurred to me as what I just put forward, never, it never occurred to me that it would be an argument against euthanasia in the in the case of there being real suffering that we are preventing, right? So it's, I fully take your point that, you know, excruciating suffering is something that we want to relieve, all things being equal. And if euthanasia is the only way to do it, well, then, then the door is open to that. It's more this argument that even in the case of a person who's no better than an animal, and in fact, quite obviously worse, right? You know, the person in the lifeboat who is less intelligent than the most intelligent chimpanzee, for whatever reason, it still might make sense to privilege their, their humanness over the chimp, given a, a triage situation. And looking strictly at capacities that cross the species boundary seems like a, perhaps a, a dangerous uh, way to go. That's more the argument right. I'm making. Okay. So in that case, it's, it's not the suffering of the being whose life we are ending that is relevant. But I do think we need to look, again, back at the, the other side of this, because we are then still preserving the idea that every member of the human species is in some way more important, or their lives are more sacrosanct or inviolable than every member of, the, of any other species. So at a moral level, we're preserving this gulf between humans and non-human animals. Now, your argument suggests, well, we're doing this to prevent a kind of slippery slope that gets us to Nazi Holocaust or something like that. And, you know, obviously, I don't want to take steps down that particular slope. But on the other hand, it also allows us to treat the non-humans in this way that I think is totally horrendous and, and is on such a vast scale that you know, 
you don't want to say this really, but the, the scale of it is far greater than anything that has happened to humans because there are only 8 billion humans on the planet and each year at present we are killing about 200 billion vertebrate animals, raising and killing for, for food, 200 billion vertebrate animals and inflicting miserable lives on them. And I think that that's a, a huge cost that we need to think about as offsetting the risk. I would see it as, as, as a rather small risk, but you know, I don't deny that. I'm not saying it's zero risk. That breaking down this barrier and suggesting that, for example, in the case of that anencephalic baby, it would have been all right to remove her heart and uh, give it to a baby who needed a new heart, that that kind of treatment is going to lead to these really you know, great evils that we have certainly seen in the past, and of course that we still see in different ways, although not quite in the same way that, that the Nazis did it. Mm. Well, I want to talk about some of the, the suffering you detail in your book, uh, but before I do, I, I just have a, I kind of want to jump to a, um, of an ethical punchline question, because so all of this has to do with you know the, the cash value of the ethical cash value of everything we're going to talk about comes down to questions of of suffering and you know whether the lives of certain animals are net negative based on you know how we raise them and how we treat them and how we kill them. But what if and, and I think you know and we'll get into some of the details, but you know I don't think many readers of your book would be tempted to defend most of the details you describe in your book around uh, the use of animals in in experiments and uh, their treatment when raised for food on on factory farms. I mean, the, the details really are appalling. But what about the more enlightened or most enlightened smaller organic farms that may or may not yet exist? I mean, just that the the ideal condition of, you know, pasture-raised cows or chickens, say, if we agreed that animals raised under those conditions, you know, albeit raised for food and eventually killed, live net positive lives, right, which is to say it would be better to have have been such an animal than to have not been at all, right? Certainly better than to have been a wild animal that lives its entire life fleeing predators. And, um, it's uh, certainly quite unlike what is happening on our industrial scale factory farms. If such idyllic or organic farms exist, and certainly some of them are, are currently advertised to exist, would eating those animals be not only ethically permissible, but better than shunning all animal agriculture? I think, I think that's a very good question um, and quite a difficult question. I accept that there are a small number of farms that do treat animals well, that, that give them good lives. In the end, they kill them, but especially if they can kill them on the farm, which in the United States is only possible for small animals like chickens and ducks and rabbits, because otherwise you're not really allowed to kill them in a, in a, on the farm. You have to take them to a slaughterhouse. But if, if they have good lives and they die without suffering, I think there is a case for saying that we are not harming them by purchasing those products because on balance their life was a good thing and if nobody purchased those products then clearly they would not have existed at all. Now that, that gets you into this quite difficult 
philosophical argument that uh, was first raised by the Oxford philosopher Derek Parfit in his book Reasons and Persons about whether bringing more beings into existence if they're going to lead good lives is actually a good thing. Mm. And of course, here there's also the question, does it in some way compensate for depriving an existing being of their life? But you know, I'm prepared to say that the answer to that question, maybe yes, it is a good thing to bring beings into existence if they're going to live good lives. And if the only way to do that is to, at some point in their life, kill them without suffering and sell their, their products, that might still be overall something that you can, you can defend. So to that extent, although I'm a, well, so I call myself a flexible vegan, I'm, I'm always vegetarian and I'm vegan when I'm shopping and buying for myself, but it's not always easy to stick to that when traveling or moving around. So although that's, that's my preferred uh, way of eating, I, I don't really reject people who, there's some, sometimes called conscientious omnivores, who really search out these small places where they can be confident that the animals have had good lives. And, and I think it's difficult to find because you can't always believe the labels. Um, I think you really need to visit the farm and talk to the people who run it and make your own judgment about how genuine they are in terms of what they're doing for animals. But, but I'm not going to deny that some of them do exist. So uh, yeah, you know, many of my fellow animal rights activists would say, no, that's still a violation of the animal's rights. You're still using it as a means to your end. But I, as I say, to me, um, that's a difficult argument to make. Mm. And I'm, I'm certainly not going to say confidently that that argument is wrong and that that's why you shouldn't, should be a, a strict vegan or vegetarian. But I am just pointing out that that's you know, fewer than 1% of the animal products raised in the United States or other affluent countries would meet that criterion, quite mm. possibly a, a lot fewer than 1%. So... It's not going to sustain the kind of diet that most Americans or most people in affluent countries will be eating. And at the very least, we would need to drastically reduce our consumption of animal products in order to be able to only limit it to animals who've had good lives. Yeah. Well, I, I, you mentioned Parfit. I, it reminds me I want to get to Parfit too. I think, you know, you see so you're referencing the um, somewhat fraught discussion of population ethics and whether whether it is justifiable in the end to just talk about the um you know aggregate suffering uh and well-being and how the, how to do the moral math there but it, it, it the math is however we do it it's it's at least implicit in more or less everything we say on this topic because I mean, as you said yourself just the sheer magnitude of animal suffering is what raises it to the current level of, of moral concern that you are giving it, right? I mean, the fact that two, you're, you're giving numbers like 200 billion animals a year, the reason why that is more important than most other things or really all other things is because of the numbers, right? I mean, it's because of some sense that more is different, which is to say more, is, more suffering spread over billions is more important. And if we could reduce the number of animals treated in appalling ways, well, then that would be making progress toward the good. And it's just, perhaps we even spoke about the repugnant conclusion and other paradoxes thrown up by Parfit's work in previous podcasts, but it is, in fact, difficult to do the math under certain rather novel framings of the sort that Parfit uh, seemed to produce, you know, every minute of the day for <laughs> for right. decades. But, um, I mean, I just... It's, 
It strikes me as morally uncontroversial that the misery and death of X number of people or animals is just, you know, all things being equal is, is not as bad as the misery and death of a thousand X number of the same people or animals. Uh, and that's, yeah. I think, you know, that's everyone's intuition. We'll certainly agree on that, yes. Yeah. Okay, so actually the most disturbing chapter in your book, I think it was probably because I was much less familiar with the details, was for me the chapter on animal experimentation, which is, I, I have to say, it's like, it's almost unbelievable that, you know, especially in, in psychological science that we did and continue to do, it sounds like, these experiments that just seem not only pointless and un- unnecessary, but just sadistic and insane to the point where I, I don't know how these experimenters do this type of work, and I certainly don't know how they attract graduate students. What is the state of current practice now, and what, and what sort of pressure has been put on, on the scientific community to stop these types of experiments? I mean, feel free to describe what I'm talking about, but I'm thinking in particular of you know, the, the learned helplessness experiments that supposedly offer some models of depression or PTSD. And it was quite amazing to discover that that Martin Seligman, who's often credited as the father of positive psychology, was among the people who has done these experiments uh, and seemed to have endorsed them as important even uh, up to the present. The details are actually jaw-dropping, so I don't, I don't, you know, we, you know, we don't need to be pointlessly gruesome here, but it's, it's just amazing what uh, you describe in your book. Yes, I, I have to say I was really disturbed in writing that chapter. I was disturbed in writing the experimentation chapter in the original edition in 1975, but I had expected things to have improved more than they have. Um, I'm not saying they haven't improved at all. They have, but there is still, as you say, a lot of quite horrendous things continuing. And I I expected things had improved because one of the things that has happened and was a result, I suppose, of pressure on scientists from the animal community was the introduction of what are generically known as as animal experimentation ethics committees, but in the United States are known as institutional animal care and use committees. And these are committees that uh, look at proposals for experiments from people in the institution that uh, may be going forward for applications for funding or or just uh, to be done. And um, they are supposed to vet the experiments. And I'd been led by some people to think that they were doing an effective job. Stephen Pinker, for example, said, wrote in, in Better Angels of Our Nature, that when he was a graduate student in psychology, um, he did what he says was one of the worst things I've ever done. And he himself describes it as, as torturing a rat to death. Um, he didn't really mean to torture it to death, but he set up an experiment, left it overnight, and in the morning the rat was dead, and he concluded that it had effectively been tortured to death because it was getting electric shocks and had not learned to stop the shock in the way that he, had, he or his supervisor had expected the rat would learn to stop the shock. But he then says, um, you know, well, that happened, whatever the date was, in the 1960s, I guess, when uh, Stephen was a graduate student. But the difference now is like the difference between night and day. And unfortunately, it's not. Unfortunately, there is still a lot of research that gets through these institutional animal care and use committees that really should not be done. That is clearly very painful and distressing to the animals. 
and that is being done in the United States, but also in, in many other countries. So the, the learned helplessness experiments that you talked about, that um, Martin Seligman and others were involved in, was an attempt to produce an animal model of depression. And uh, the idea was that you train an animal to be able to escape an electric shock. So a, a dog, for example, would be put in a, in a sort of cage enclosure that had two sides to it, and uh, it had a wire floor on both sides, but you could electrify the floor on one side, and the dog would then uh, feel the shock and would rapidly jump onto the other side of this box where there was no electric shock, and it would learn to do that. But then at some point, you put up a barrier so the dog can't jump away from the electric shock. And as the experimenters themselves describe, after a large number of attempts to escape, and I think they use things like you know running around, urinating, defecating, yelping, the dog will eventually give up the attempt to escape and will simply lie on the electrified floor and passively uh, accept the shock. Uh, and the idea was that this would be in some way a model for depression and that maybe we would learn to treat depression, which of course is a t terrible condition when humans have severe and untreatable depression, uh, from, from doing this to dogs. But this went on for decades and uh, we never learnt anything that enabled us to treat the severe cases of depression from this. And although it's now accepted by the experimenters themselves that this was not a good model of depression, in fact, and that even the, the label they'd given to it, learned helplessness, turned out to be wrong because it wasn't actually learned behavior. It was something that was more biologically innate. But you know, after they'd given up using that as a model for depression, somebody then had the bright idea of saying, well, maybe this is not a good model for depression, but how about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which is a problem that you know, we talk about a lot now. Um, so then they said, well, yeah, could we use it for that? And then they said, hmm but maybe it's not traumatic enough or you know, maybe there's a theory that PTSD comes from early childhood abuse and then that is reignited by a later traumatic uh, event. So one of the experiments I describe uh, done with, with rats um, attempts to replicate this, attempts to say, okay, we'll give them some abuse when they're very young and then we'll abuse them again when they get older. And they set up things where they do a whole variety of, of different forms of, of trauma to them. So one is giving them inescapable electric shock. Another is dropping them into a, a shear-sided container of water um, where they have to swim to stay alive. And you, you have what's called the forced swimming test. You let them for 20 minutes where they can't get out of this container. They have to keep swimming and swimming. Um, and probably they're fearsome, fearful, of course, of getting tired and, and drowning. Then another one is you immobilize them. You put them in plastic cones where they can't move at all. They're completely immobilized in all their limbs. And um, yeah, and you, or you may deprive them of food. So again, a lot of, a lot of pain and distress is being inflicted on animals. And, and is this really a model of human post-traumatic stress disorder? It seems very unlikely because it seems that we have a different kind of awareness of what's going on. And uh, we talk about it with other people. It's a social thing as, as well. We may feel that we were humiliated because we were abused and mistreated, which perhaps a, a rat does not feel or not feel in the same way. So it is a kind of continuation of saying, well, we use animals in this way. What else can we think of that we will use mm. uh, and abuse? Um, but you know, very little of this 
translates to being useful for humans. Uh, you can't say it's zero, but there's an immense amount of pain and suffering inflicted on animals in the hope that it will do some good for humans, but it very rarely does. And of course, it uses a lot of resources. It takes money. It takes scientific, you know, talented scientists to work on this. And who knows if we use those resources and those talented people to more directly try and treat people with the disease, do research, clinical studies of humans with the condition, maybe we would have got better treatments for these conditions without abusing animals. Mm. Well, also in the context of that discussion, you make the um, quite astute point, really devastating for the, the whole enterprise, which is to say that if this work really is to translate into our understanding of human suffering, it will only translate because these animals are deeply analogous to humans in their suffering. And if they are deeply analogous to humans in their suffering, well, then that makes our mistreatment of them all the more odious, uh, ethically speaking. So insofar as this work could be useful, it approaches the you know, ethical asymptote of just the, the, the monstrosity of treating uh, other sentient beings in this way. And insofar as they're not at all analogous and the suffering is you know, in a Cartesian sense, really just an illusion, uh, well then, why are we doing the work in the first place? Exactly, yes, that's right. It's, it's, a, it's a dilemma that people who do this kind of work on animals in psychology ha- have to face. Either um, the animal is really like us in terms of its psychology and its mind, its mental states, in which case, how can we possibly justify doing this? Or it's completely unlike us, and then what are we going to learn from doing these things to the animal? So I yeah, I don't think they can win that argument. Yeah, I, I think the most depressing studies you cite in the book, I, I've, I've now forgotten whether the, these are more from the first edition or whether the, this kind of work has continued up to the present, perhaps you can tell me, but it's all the maternal deprivation stuff with, with monkeys and apes where you know, they're given a, instead of you know, access to their actual mother, they're given access to a, you know, a wire frame a simulacrum of a mother, but you know every sadistic permutation of this seems to have been explored, including mothers that you know pointlessly shock them or stab them or you know screech with loud sounds or I mean if you just imagine an alien race coming to Earth and beginning to treat us this way, uh, you know the only theory of mind you could have about them is it's just they're just pure evil, right? I mean it's just like there there is no greater evil than the adumbrations of those experiments that some brilliant grad student or his, his or her um, supervisor has designed, does that work still continue? And if so, what is the possible justification for it? Well, that work went on for a very long time. Uh, Harry Harlow was the one who really started this series of experiments back in the 1950s. And then, he, he, yeah, I mean, he really did horrendous things, as you say, that you, you have to suspect there was some kind of sadism behind this. From, from the things he did and from the way he wrote about it, right? I mean, he used terms like he created a tunnel of terror, he calls it, mm-hmm. to frighten these monkeys to see if he could see what you know, pathology, mental pathology developed. Uh, and then he, he, he got these neurotic female monkeys and he wanted to see how they reacted with their own babies, but they wouldn't allow the males to mate with them. So then he constructed what he calls in his own paper a rape rack basically tying the, the females down so that the males could rape them and you know, then sees what, how they are, what sort of mothers they are with their babies and uh, 
he describes how the, one of them takes its baby um, face down on the floor and rubs its face across the grid of the wire cage. So, uh, you know, there's generations of suffering that he is causing. So he trained his graduate students to continue to, to do this work. One of them was Stephen Suomi, who got, continued to get large grants from the National Institutes of Health in the United States, supporting this research, until finally People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, as it's more commonly known, the animal group, aroused uh, opposition to them. And I think they stopped in 2015, something like that. But so these experiments had gone on for 60 years this vein of experiments. Mm. As far as I know, they're not going on now. I certainly hope they're not going on now, but obviously they went on far too long. And there are other things that may be almost as bad that are still continuing. Mm. Well, so now th this is a, there's a line here that I, you know, I don't know how to specify it, but I mean, my associations with PETA as an organization, you know, albeit distant associations, I've never had any direct experience of the group, but I just, from the kinds of protests I've heard them you know, perform, it has seemed to be against all animal experimentation, no matter how uh, seemingly sane and necessary it is, right? So it's like, I mean, granted, the experimentation you describe in your book is something that you know, I, I see no ethical justification for. But again, I believe I can imagine the judicious and careful use of, of non-human animals for the purpose of mitigating the most appalling forms of human suffering, and that there may not be any, you know, computer simulations that can come to the rescue here to make that kind of work no longer necessary, right? So I, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what what the best examples are at this point, but yeah, I, no, I imagine so, there are some. So can you speak to that yeah. issue of just the the potential animal rights extremism here that would prevent us from figuring out how to cure our children's cancers or, or spinal cord injuries or whatever it is. Right. So I think actually that Peter does tend to focus on the experiments which are not curing our children's cancers, and that's obviously good tactics if you want to change something. You don't want to tackle the hardest cases. You want to tackle the cases that will be more widely accepted by the public. But, but there's a lot of pressure, of course, you know, as with, with, with any group or political group of activists, lobbyists, there's a lot of pressure to sort of stick to a, a party line and not allow much nuance in your position. And I think that that's probably responsible for the fact that there certainly are organizations against animal experimentation, whether or not Peter is one of them, I'm not quite in a position to say, that would say we're against all animal experiments, even the ones that will cure your, the cancer of your children. So I'm not in that position, I do think that you have to accept that there can be potentially justifiable experiments. Now, always, of course, I think first you should see, as in fact you suggested, is there some non-animal using way we can make progress on this issue? And you mentioned computer simulation. Uh, for some cases, it might be growing cells in vitro where there's no conscious being, but just cells that are being worked with. There's a whole range of fields of developing alternatives to animal research. In fact, uh, at the end of August, I attended a conference at Niagara Falls, in which there were several hundred scientists from 40 different countries all exchanging notes on, on where they were making progress. But, um, you know, I certainly acknowledge that, that there are experiments going on now that we cannot replace with non-animal using methods. And some of them will have benefits that are 
sufficient to say, yes, reluctantly at the moment, we are justified in doing this with animals while trying to minimize their suffering to the greatest extent possible. Mm. One example that I give in the book is, is research to alleviate the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, which you know, many mm. of listeners will know somebody who has Parkinson's disease or may have it themselves in their early stages. Um, and it is a, a, a terrible condition and it affects well, millions of people worldwide. So if you could find, if you, if you have something that really has good hopes of curing the disease or in the case of the research that I mentioned in the book, alleviating the symptoms of the disease, which is an important part, of course, is it's a slow acting disease. I think you, know, you could defend that if there were really no other way to, to find that treatment. So um, yeah, it makes life more complicated to, to recognize that and then you have to start drawing lines. It's a lot easier if you just say, well, no harmful experiments can be done on animals at all. But the cost to that is that you are, have far s- smaller chances of actually obtaining public support because, of course, the lobby that wants to continue to do animal experiments, which is not only the scientists but also the big commercial companies like Charles River Laboratories that produce millions of animals for use in laboratories and make good profits from it. So the mm. lobbyists are well-funded and they will place ads you know, basically saying, your child or the rat, here are these fanatics who want us to stop you know, promising research to uh, save your child from cancer, and they want to stop it because we're using rats. And clearly, at this stage anyway, the public is going to say, oh, I'll choose my child, thank you very much, not the rat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, this is one of those instances where the perfect uh, and the pure can be the enemy of the good. and. Uh, yeah, I would I would agree that it's important to be pragmatic as well as principled here. Well, let's talk about effective altruism because this is this is something that I have I, I know you you and I have spoken about it before. I've certainly spoken to Will McCaskill and many times on the podcast and Toby Ord uh, at least once. This is a movement that I have I've never been kind of officially an adherent of, though I've been very directly informed by it. You know, it's representation online in a you know in the kind of the branded culture of effective altruists has always struck me as not perfectly passing the smell test. I mean, there's something quasi cultic about it, or dogmatic, or something that 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 always concerned me. And this is something I've spoken to Will about at least. But generally speaking, it seemed like a major advance over the normal way of approaching philanthropy, which is just to let your your sentimentality and, and good feels be your guide and to really have no rational accounting of the good you're doing uh, or the harm you may be causing apart from that. So it's, you know, it really has informed the way I give to causes uh, very directly. And then here comes Sam Bankman-Fried, who, who was very clearly the poster boy for kind of the ultimate instance of what effective altruists call earning to give, where you know, you, you, you're, you're a smart person whose talents could be easily monetized and you recognize that it's far better than, than joining a, a, an organization like you know, Doctors Without Borders or, or anything else where you're, you're explicitly doing good in the world. It would be better to earn all the money you can earn and support those organizations because then you have the effect of hundreds or thousands or even tens of thousands of people doing that good. And in his case, he seemed to earn more money than almost anyone in human history, and he was earning it 
explicitly for the purpose of doing all the good he could do. And quite unhappily, the cynicism uh, with which this project was, was viewed by many people who take a dim view of effective altruism and, or even a, a, view of altru- a dim view of altruism as well. I mean, just the, the kind of the Ayn Rand types in Silicon Valley who think it's all just virtue signaling and any pretensions to the contrary is just kind of human vanity uh, and uh, you know, status signaling under some other guys. I'm not going to name names, but there are many people who, who view really any, any philanthropy uh, along those lines. And he seemed to be the, the living confirmation of all of their prejudices. And it, because uh, we don't have to go into details here, I think everyone will be familiar with just how fully it really became a Greek tragedy, at, at least when viewed from the point of view of, of Sam Bankman Fried's parents, I think, just how fully he soared in the estimation of everyone and then immolated. What's been your experience as certainly one of the patriarchs of effective altruism? in the uh, the advent of of the um the Sam Bankman Fried catastrophe. Well, and, and it has been a tragedy. I think that's a a good way to describe it. It's a tragedy viewed from many different perspectives. You mentioned Sam's parents who were uh, professors of of law at Stanford and it's hard to imagine how it has felt for them seeing their son who seemed to be doing so extraordinarily well and then crashed and is now facing a, a long sentence in prison. It's tragic for Sam himself, of course, um, but the, the greatest tragedy, no doubt, is that he did have a very considerable wealth. I think he was, there were various estimates, but uh, he was said to be the richest person under 30 in the world, and I think his fortune was then estimated at $25 billion. And so the amount of good that that could do is, is, would be very significant, but it all vanished because, you know, well, we all know the story of uh, that uh, he'd made, he made risky bets through a, a hedge fund and then tried to cover up the loss or prop, prop up the, uh, the other fund by using his client's money, which he then was unable to, to repay. So it would have been so much better if he had actually given that money away and if he had given more of it away at the time. I think he, I've seen estimates that suggest he maybe gave away $150 million, something like that at the time when everything came down, crashing down, hmm. which is a substantial sum of money, of course, but nothing like what he could have given. So, yeah, it, it could have done a lot more good. Are there lessons to be drawn from it? And is some people say, you know, the lesson something that reflects on effective altruism as a whole? Well, I don't think that that's the case because, you know, it might be something about earning to give as a specific tactic, but Effective altruism is much wider than earning to give. And in fact, even before the, the crash of, of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange and, and SAM, many people in the effective altruism movement were actually toning down the emphasis on earning to give. It had got a lot of media attention when Will McCaskill in particular first started talking about it. It was a novelty. It was a kind of interesting idea, a great headline, you know, um, What's the best way to make the world a better place? Go to Wall Street. Um, well, everybody's going to say, ah, what? And they're going to click on that story. And then there was a reasonably plausible account as to why going to Wall Street, if you had the right talents to earn a lot of money, might be the best thing that you could do. But I think the sort of experience already before Sam came crashing down was that it didn't work for everybody. And uh, also that perhaps 
the effective altruism movement had underestimated the value of really talented people working for just those kind of organizations that directly help people. Uh, you mentioned Doctors Without Borders, you know, the, but there, there, there are many of them, organizations working for people in extreme poverty in the world, whether it's in the health area or whether it's helping people to get out of poverty. There are a lot of them. And in fact, um, I founded an organization called The Life You Can Save, which curates a list of uh, 25 or so of those independently vetted effective organizations. And so the question is, how much good could these talented people do if they went to those organizations and they helped them to be more efficient themselves or maybe help them to attract a wider range of donors so that they had more resources to use? Uh, those are also valuable things. Some of these people might have become research scientists who might have achieved important things in, let's say, well, a whole range of areas. Again, it could be health, it could be uh, agriculture, um, developing plants that are more resistant to the changes that we're going to get through climate change, uh, or people could go into politics and try to change politics for the better, try to make US foreign aid more effective, for example. That would do an immense amount of good. So I think that you know, going to Wall Street or uh, earning to give is only one part and perhaps an overemphasized part of effective altruism. So I think, yes, there are lessons for that area, and the lessons are Make sure that you obey all the rules. Make sure that you don't think you're such a genius that you, unlike others, can take shortcuts, can borrow the trust funds that your clients have entrusted to you and use them to prop up something that you've done that's not so great. Those are the real mistakes that brought everything down. Mm. And I think it does show that you know, even if we're as, as utilitarian as we like, as much as concerned about producing good consequences, departing from accepted rules of good conduct in these areas is uh, very, very dangerous and never worth the risk. A bit like the, the guns mm. that you were talking about, you know, yeah. really check, check and double check that you're complying with all the duties and rules of the financial business before you go ahead with anything. Yeah, this is kind of a, a, a split between rule utilitarianism and, and act utilitarianism. I, I worry that the harm he caused could have been the result not of any conscious malfeasance, but just his, and again, I'm, and I'm saying this somewhat, as someone who's is not as informed about the details of the case as I, perhaps I, I should be. I mean, I've read most of Michael Lewis's book about him and followed the case, but and I, I spoke to him once, although not about these sorts of things that would have given me insight into his, his motivations here. But it occurs to me at least uh, that it's at least possible that rather being a rather than being a kind of Bernie Madoff figure who was consciously doing any kind of harm, uh, I, I got to think in, in Madoff's case, he knew that you know the people who were, who were giving him money at the end of his career, certainly at the end, were, were at the bottom of a pyramid scheme, uh, and the money was almost never going, almost certainly never going to trickle down to them. Which is to say that he was actually engaged in a conscious fraud that was going to immiserate some people. He had to know that was going to happen. But in Sam Bankman-Fried's case, it seems at least possible to me that he really thought he was placing a very wise series of bets. And in fact, given the kind of the utility function he was using to continue to place bets that had some possibility of, of a positive return, given the kinds of existential risks he's thinking about that he was it was prudent to do and 
you know, he was being ethical all the while. Um, and he's just, you know, he, I think there's a place to stand where you can realize he's, he was wrong about that given what happened and given the kinds of considerations you just expressed by, you know, by analogy to the gun analogy. But do you have a theory of mind about, I don't know if you, how well you knew him, I'm sure you met him. What do you think he was consciously up to? I, I, I have met him and we had some conversation about, you know, in fact, I, I met him in the situation in which I was inviting him to support The Life You Can Save, the organization I mentioned, um, so that we could spread the message of giving effectively and specifically giving to those organizations helping people in extreme poverty that had been independently assessed and found to be the most effective. And I was hoping that he would promote that message. But uh, we didn't really discuss his investment strategies. That would not have been for me, for me to, to talk to him about. And at the time, I had no inkling, I don't think anybody did, of the risks that he was taking. But yes, I, I mean, I'm certainly prepared to believe that he was sincere in wanting to do good, um, when he, certainly when he started out to earn to give. And in that respect, he's completely unlike Bernie Madoff, who, as you correctly say, I think must have known that he was taking money from people under false pretenses. But, um, but I think that he was still far too much of a gambler. I mean, either that or he was just really incompetent, which mm. some people have suggested that's what comes out of the trial, that, you know, he didn't, I mean, he said it was his defense in a way. He didn't know that this money was being taken away to, uh, from the client's funds. So, and, and it did seem the uh, administrator who came in did seem to say that it was all a, a, a huge mess. So it may be that it wasn't being competently run because it grew too fast and um, he didn't bring on the experienced staff that he should have to make sure that it was being properly run and the accounts were being kept properly and that nobody was doing backdoor things. But, but the other story is that he actually authorized this uh, backdoor way of getting money out of uh, FTX, the crypto exchange, and into Alameda, the, uh, the fund that had lost money and needed to be propped up. So um, I, don't, I don't really know what the truth is among those, but I think we can confidently say that uh, he was prepared to take huge risks mm. that he should not have been prepared to take. And you know, it's this sort of story of, you know, yes, let's say you have a 51% chance of doubling your money and a 49% chance of losing it all. And, and you keep doing that and you say, oh, well, 51% chance, you know, the expected value of doubling your money is greater than the 49% chance of losing it all. But you know that if you're going to do this again and again and again, you will end up with nothing. And that's perhaps the, the, the gambling streak that he felt he was on was trying to take those sorts of odds in a situation mm. in which you're highly likely to end up losing it all. Yeah. Did, did you read the Lewis book? No, I haven't read the Lewis book. Uh, no. I mean, the, clearly there's, you know, I'm just taking this at face value as, as reported by Lewis, but I mean, it seems that he, he's not a a psychologically normal, much less normative person. I mean, at one point he tells Lewis that he really has no idea what people mean when they say they love other human beings, right? Like he just like love is not something he thought he had any experience of. So that's not, not the optimal piece of software to have running on your brain if you're going to live a fully actualized ethical life, I would say. No, it's uh, sad, really. It's yeah. sad if, sad situation to be in. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it becomes, you know, I don't know if, if his parents are at all culpable for what he did, given that they were to one or another degree involved with FTX, but just viewing them as parents, and that's where it really does look like a 
Greek tragedy. I mean, it's just unbelievable to think of what their experience has been like. Do you have any thoughts about effective altruism at this point and its public relation needs and just what, how it should consider itself or reconsider itself in light of what's happened? Well, I I have a concern that I think is not identical with the concern about Sam Bankman-Fried, but maybe in some way is related to it. And that is, just as I think earning to give was too prominent for a time in the public face of the effective altruism movement, so I think the concern for the long-term future, which mm-hmm. Will McCaskill and Toby Ord, who you both mentioned and had on the program, I know, have both been concerned to promote, I think that has also got too much of the airtime of the effective altruism movement. Yeah. Too much in the sense that it's, it's disproportionate to the number of people in the effective altruism movement who are working for long-termism. And also, it's perhaps disproportionate in terms of what would be the ideal number of people working against long-term risks uh, as compared with those working against present and near-future short-term risks or hazards. Because, uh, you know, again, it looks like, and I've heard that this is in terms of effective altruism groups, a lot of the discussion is about what we can do to prevent risk of extinction and to ensure that there are, you know, that our species survives for a billion years, let's say, or do our best to reduce the chances of our species becoming extinct. And uh, this includes looking at a variety of scenarios which might cause our extinction, including uh, a lot of emphasis on uh, superintelligent artificial intelligence that is not aligned with our values and therefore gets rid of us because we're a nuisance. And you know, I'm not saying that these aren't real questions. I'm not saying that, that these are silly or anything like that to work on, not at all. I think it's actually a very good thing that thoughtful people, uh, smart people are thinking about wh- what are the risks of our species becoming extinct and how can we reduce those risks. But it's one among several things that effective altruists can do. And some of the near-term things are, in fact, things that may actually also uh, help to ensure the survival of our species. So, uh, as I said, I've been concerned through the life you can save to help people in extreme poverty and to try to increase the number of resources or the amount of resources going to the most effective organizations that help people to get out of poverty and help them to have better lives if they're in poverty. And I think that that's an important thing to do, both because of directly what it does. It's, it's, I think it's scandalous that there are something like over 700 million people living on less than $2.15 US per day, when there are also you know, well over a billion people living in a, at a level of affluence that uh, really hasn't existed throughout history previously or only in very tiny numbers. And I think we in the affluent world ought to be doing a lot more to help people escape poverty and to try to bring extreme poverty down, if not to zero, then to uh, much lower levels than it is now. So I think that's something that's good and important in its own sake. But I also think that actually, if we don't do that, if we were to put our resources into trying to reduce the risk of extinction and not focus on people in poverty now, we would be creating a world that in some way people learn not to care about the misery of of Mm -hmm. those sharing the planet with them. And we would become less compassionate. And that in itself might actually increase the risk of of extinction or of uh, being locked into some horrendous state of the world from which we can't get out. 
So, uh, you know, that and also the question of animal suffering, which we talked about before, it's another area where we're going to say, well, are we going to allow our compassion to influence what we do? Are we going to have empathy for other beings who are, in a way, you know, not able to control their own fate because of the things that, that we do? I think those things are important to help to produce a more humane and a more civilized world in the long run, which in turn could be um, an important contributing factor to the survival of our species. Mm. So that's why I would, I would like to see, uh, if you like, a more even distribution of attention to those and other causes. You know, climate change is another important issue that I think effective altruists can work on and try to recommend the most effective ways to uh, reduce the chances of catastrophic climate change. I, I would like to see more balance in terms of what we associate effective altruism with and less focus on the long-termist view. Mm. Yeah, I share that, that intuition, although I, I just I have to recognize that the shadow of population ethics hangs over this discussion because uh, you know, obviously the justification for an emphasis or overemphasis on extinction risk is in the numbers, right? I mean, they, so mm -hmm. on, on the account right. of any long-termists, they would say, well, there's, there, there are 8 billion people currently alive. There have been something like 100 billion people who have ever existed. If the human future is going to continue indefinitely, there could be trillions upon trillions of our descendants who will live unimaginably happy and creative lives as they you know, farm the cosmos. And if we live in such a way as to prevent all that goodness from taking place because we have a nuclear war or we don't solve the problem of pandemic risk or we don't divert the asteroid that might have, you know, be on an earth-crossing path, which is to say we don't prioritize extinction risk above everything else, well then, you know, that would be the most monstrous evil we could ever be culpable for. And so it really does, again, just with this very rudimentary expected value calculation. If if the thing you could spend your time doing could decrease the risk of canceling the future by, you know, one tenth of one percent, well, when you do the math against trillions upon trillions of possible lives um, that are unimaginably better than the lives we currently lead, given all the possibilities for progress, well, then that's better than feeding and housing and caring for the dispossessed of the earth, you know, however lavishly you could do that right now, because it's just the math, it just doesn't pencil out. You know, how, how do you arrest the slide into the implications of the arithmetic there, Peter? Well, it's, it's, it's almost like a kind of Pascal's wager, isn't it? You know, that if you're going to, you, you better believe in God, because otherwise you could spend an eternity in hell. And then since that's an eternity, literally infinite time in hell, it outweighs everything else. And something like that is going on, even if it is not quite infinite number of humans who, who could exist. But is it hypothetical in that sense? Because the, the problem with Pascal's wager is that there, there are many reasons to think that the picture of reality on offer is just not true. Whereas in this case, if we don't do something so as to cancel the future, and we just keep going, well then, yes, there, are, there will be many, many more billions and, you know, very likely trillions, you know, if we get better at solving our ex existential problems. Well, yes, there, there, there certainly could be. If we, don't, if we don't become extinct, there could be a very large number of humans. 
Whether their lives are going to be as positive as some people think they will be is another question because it's true that mm-hmm. you know, we've made a lot of progress in the last couple of hundred years in terms of living better lives. And uh, I've even argued that uh, we made moral progress in expanding the circle of beings with whom we're concerned from you know, our own tribe to uh, all humans and even to some extent to non-human animals. So I'm, I'm something of an optimist about this. But still, I think it's by no means certain that future beings will be so, you know, will have such rich and fulfilling lives as we like to imagine, because we can see that there are some really bad tendencies in human nature as well. Uh, We unfortunately just have to look at the world at the time at which we're speaking about this, and we see a war going on in Ukraine that is the result of grandiose ambitions for power and for extending the reach of the Russian uh, Empire, and another war going on, which you could say was the result of uh, religious uh, extremists and fanatics on, on both sides, who have made it so much more difficult to achieve a peaceful solution than it would have been if there were more secular-minded people on, on both sides looking for a, a compromise. So, you know, I think we have to be fairly optimistic to think that, uh, you know, all we have to do is prevent extinction and the future will be Uh, an extremely rosy one for a very large number of human beings. But let me me emphasize again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't work on reducing extinction risks. Um, I do think that's a good thing. You mentioned the uh, risk of extinction caused by an asteroid or a comet crashing into our planet. Um, That seems to me one where there's a risk where you can put a, a, a number on that. And there are very concrete things that you can do to reduce that risk, such as tracking all of the possible bodies, which uh, NASA is already trying to do, and then uh, developing rockets that might deflect the asteroid from its course if we discover it is going to collide with us. So that all seems very practical and feasible, and I, and not absorbing you know all of the resources that we have available to help people in extreme poverty. So I'm I'm s- certainly support that. But but when the scenarios get more speculative and also, when we don't know what the effect will be of diverting resources from the causes that arouse our compassions here and now, hmm. then I'm less impressed by these attempts to do the mathematics because there are assumptions behind the mathematics that might turn out to be quite wrong. Hmm. I, I think we both agree that suffering and its magnitude is the, the appropriate target of our moral concern. You know, on the negative side, we, we're also concerned about happiness and foreclosing the possibility of it as well on the positive side. But just to take suffering as the focus of our concern, what about the fact that so much of human suffering is comparative psychologically? So for instance, I think this is a point I I brought up with Will McCaskill. I don't think you and I discussed this previously. Tell me if I'm wrong. No, I don't. don't, Not that I recall. But the point I made to Will there was that, you know, it's natural in the, in the, you know, under an effective altruist framing to be more concerned about the suffering of the, the desperately poor in the developing world than the, the merely uh, sort of poor in the developed one because they're just much poorer. And, you know, you know even a, a homeless person in San Francisco, while they may not have everything they want or need, they're not starving to death, right? Whereas in Somalia or some place where there might be a famine, you really are dealing with human starvation. and So it's natural to focus there. But what if, in fact, it's just true 
psychologically, maybe starvation is the wrong bar to set. Let's say we're, we're meeting starvation needs everywhere. But once people are not starving to death, it might in fact be, you might be more appropriately targeting the worst human misery if you were focusing on the homeless in San Francisco uh, rather than the in the even poorer people elsewhere, because it, it is in fact psychologically true to say that the juxtaposition of that kind of poverty and dysfunction in you know one of the world's richest cities, it's more of a crucible of suffering than someone living in a a slum in Mumbai or Kinshasa is experiencing because again, because so much human suffering is based on expectation and what the story one tells oneself about one the 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 failures of one's life project and the you know the day-to-day encounters with the success and happiness of others, etc. You, you I, I take it you see where I'm going there. Oh yes, certainly I see where you're going. And I I agree. I mean the psychological suffering might be even more severe in those circumstances because of the comparative feeling that one has done so poorly or has been treated so poorly as compared with others. But the other factor that I would think is important is how much does it actually cost to improve the situation Mm. of the person we're talking about? And if we're talking about people in extreme poverty, uh, so Give Directly, which is an organization that The Life You Can Save recommends, uses the idea of giving cash grants to people in extreme poverty. It was you know, a fairly radical idea when it started a decade or so ago, but they have been very transparent about it. They've followed it up, and clearly that does benefit people. They don't, as some cynic said, just go and spend it on um, alcohol or prostitutes or gambling. People do use it in ways that make them and their families better off. Now, one of the things that Give Directly does is it set up a universal basic income uh, for some areas of, of rural uh, East Africa. And the last time I looked, this could have changed. The, the, what they were doing was giving $8 a month to these families, and that mm. was making a difference to the quality of their life. You can't imagine that giving $8 a month to a homeless person in San Francisco would make any positive difference to their life. I mean, if, yeah. obviously, some of them might be spending it on, on drugs or alcohol, but um, they, uh, even if they didn't, it was just too small a sum. So if we're trying to use our resources as effectively as possible and you know, we have a certain sum and this could help 100 people in East Africa to have better lives, whereas it's doubtful whether it could even help one person because that person needs counseling and psychological care and uh, all of that you know, requires people who are, have to be paid decent uh, salaries to, to do that work, then I think we should be looking at, at where we can do the most good and that's still probably not going to be in the affluent country. Hmm. Well, finally, uh, Peter, I'd love to um, close with with your thoughts on Derek Parfit. And uh, I just I, I know you edited the the final volume to his uh, massive last book on what matters, uh, which I'm still ashamed to say I've only read parts of. But um, I, I think I'm probably in good company there, given that yeah, it's if, over if a thousand can... pages. Sorry, if I can just correct, I didn't edit the last, I didn't edit volume three of On What Matters. What I edited was a collection of essays called Does Anything Really correct. Matter? Yeah. And volume three was uh, in large part a response to those essays. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, at one stage it was all going to be volume three. It was my, the essays and Derek's response was going to be in volume three. But Derek wrote such a long response that Oxford said, this is impossible. We can't have a book as fat as that. 
So they called his volume three and they called mine, Does Anything Really Matter? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I've read some of those essays, even not having read all of his books. But what, what, I mean, I'm a, a huge fan of his uh, and I really consider it a missed opportunity. I had some back and forth with him by email and we were, we were preparing to do an interview and then, you know, his health, you know, fully unraveled. Yeah. So what was it like to be his colleague? I know you were quite impressed with him as a philosopher as well. I was first his student and that was actually a wonderful experience. When I came to Oxford as a graduate student in 1969 and he, together with two other philosophers, Jonathan Glover and Jim Griffin, mm. was uh, teaching a seminar of, I can't remember the title, but it was something, you know, maybe it was Issues in Applied Ethics or, or it was something along those lines. And they were all good. They were all very good philosophers. But um, Derek's was then introducing this problem of what became known as the repugnant conclusion, the idea that by a series of seemingly very plausible steps, you can go from a population, let's say quite a large population, if you like, 10 billion people living extremely good lives. And by going each time to a world that is either not worse than that world or, or better than one of the worlds, you can get to a world which has a vastly larger population of people living lives that are still positive, but only just barely positive. And that seems very counterintuitive. And Parfit gave it the name, the repugnant conclusion, because it seemed repugnant to him. Uh, although he started developing that in the early 1970, let's say, or early 70s, I don't think anybody has really shown how convincingly to develop a coherent theory that avoids that. Parfit said he was searching for theory X, mm-hmm. and theory X has never been found. But, um, but the, you know, just going, going as a young graduate student to those seminars was a really uh, an incredibly intellectually stimulating experience that got me thinking hard. I did then get to know Parfit. I went to talk to him. I, sh- I sent him some things that I'd been writing, some of them on that issue. And, and incidentally, I, I published an attempt to find Theory X in a book edited by Michael Bales called Ethics and Population. And Parfit wrote a reply to it that I think is still the most destructive and devastating <laughs> response to anything that I've ever written. But so I, I really had to say, no, that won't work and, and, mm. and start again. Yeah, but uh, then I, you know, I got to know him more as a colleague and uh, certainly supported his, his work, particularly with On What Matters, which argues for the objectivity in ethics and had an influence on my views in that I wasn't always an objectivist about ethics, but I became one under his influence and also that of, of uh, Tom Nagel, the American mm-hmm. philosopher. So all of that was really important in my philosophical development and life, and I'm very glad to have known Derek. Um, People who want to get a sense of what he was like, I think, could read uh, David Edmonds' biography, Parfit, yeah. which um, yeah, great book. Uh, you know, I talked to Dave about it, and I think he, I think he gets Parfit very well. Really, um, I think it's a it's a good read, and you get some of his philosophy and some of him as a person. That's a, a nice combination. Yeah, David was on the podcast uh, a few months ago, which uh, oh, great. Uh, that was a fun conversation. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one one of the impediments I I, I sort of stumbled into. The conversation about metaethics with my third book, the the moral landscape. Right, I know it. Yep. And um, you know, it was not. It, it's loosely a an argument for consequentialism being a a moral morally realistic picture of what is true. I mean, that, that we we live in a universe where there's a wide range of experiences uh, that are possible, and uh, we're only dimly exploring the, the the fullness of that range. And but we know that 
there's a, a vast difference between pointless misery and you know sublime states of bliss and love and creativity and we're you know we're on something like a bedrock when we try to navigate to the latter and away from the former which is to say we don't need any ju- any further justification for that preference uh, even if our preferences ultimately get overturned by new insights and new discoveries and and so one of the sticking points which I really didn't appreciate when I when I wrote that book, but which I encountered in trying to defend it, is that in the Western tradition, and I, I, I think this is a kind of a Western intellectual virus, the origins of which I, I have to think are somehow related to you know, Abrahamic religion, uh, there's this very tight coupling between, you know, seeming coupling between any claim of objectivity with respect to right and wrong and good and evil, and this notion of should or ought i mean that there's there's a that someone should be in knowing what's morally true one should be persuaded to the point of acting upon that that knowledge and if persuasion fails well then that is some indication that there is no such thing as moral truth that assumption has never made any sense to me like it's perfectly obvious to me that i can know what is in my best interests? I mean, even taking it out of the moral sphere, I can know, I can know how to lose weight. I can want to lose weight, and yet I can act in such a way as to not lose weight because I want other things. Right? I'm distractible from my even what is my deeper purpose, and that could hold true in the moral sphere. And so, this idea that that moral truth, in order to exist, has to be persuading people to act so as to move toward it. That has never made sense to me, and, and I'm, I'm just—I'm wonder, wondering if you can give me some right. reaction to that. So I, th- I think to make this a little more precise, we need to distinguish between whether the moral truth, or for that matter, the truths about your own interests, are capable of moving people to action, and whether they do in fact persuade people to move to action. Because I think the f- the first is true, but the second is not. And so in your example mm-hmm. of the fact that you're distracted by, you know, this delicious looking cake here, even though you know that it's in your interest to lose some weight and not to eat the cake. I think that's just, yeah, we have to accept that. We're not fully rational beings. But I think what Parfit would have wanted to defend was the claim that there are reasons for acting in the way that is objectively morally good. And probably also that there are reasons for acting in your own interests, at least if that is not harming others. So I think the argument is that if we want morality to be objective, if we want the values to be objective, then it has to provide us with some kinds of reasons for action, not necessarily reasons that are going to override these other right. inclinations. But if it doesn't provide us with reasons for action, then there's something that has gone astray because then we're just looking at something without seeing that it gives us any reason to do anything. And that's not really going to be an ethic or a, a morality that we is of any use to anyone. So, you know, I mean, I tend to agree with you, of course, that really what is at the base of this is values and trying to produce the best consequences. But I think if you have an understanding of what is, what are the best consequences in the sense that the universe would be a better place if these things happen, let's say if there was less extreme agony suffered by sentient beings, then insofar as we're rational beings, and, and that's, we're not entirely rational beings, but insofar as we are rational beings, we would see that as a reason for reducing agony where we could do so and there would be no other adverse 
consequences from mm. the fact that we'd reduced agony. Yeah, no, I, I agree there. I, I, it just feels that the, it, the, this comes back to the, the Hume point, yeah, the, which is about which I think much too much has been made that you can't get an, an ought from an is, right? I think that this is a, you know, I, as you know, Hume didn't spend much time on that point in, in his book. No, it's a fairly casual sort of aside. That's, yeah. that's true. Yeah. It's almost like Fermat's last theorem. Like I, I, <laughs> I, I prove, it's just a piece of marginalia. Like I proved this over here. And yet people think it's an absolute defeater to any objective ethics. There's no statement of the way the universe is that could possibly r- really guide one's core ethical commitments because you can't get from a statement about facts to a statement about values. And I just think there, there are many ways to put the lie to this claim, but one is to just to accept it you know, as given and say, well, that, it's not even something we have to do because it, we, we never think, I mean, to just take this claim into logical space or, you know, like, when I, when I say that, you know, two plus two makes four, right? Now, you, you either see that or you don't. You either see that it generalizes to all possible objects. You know, it works with apples and it works with oranges and it works with pears and it just works in the abstract. If you don't see that, it, it adds nothing for me to say, well, you should logically right. see, understand that two plus two makes four. Two plus two simply makes four. And what I would say is that there's a difference between the worst possible suffering for everyone and states of the universe that are quite a bit better. And if you can pretend not to see that, well, then you're not really party to the conversation that would help us navigate from one to the other. But we don't have to be hamstrung by saying that I've given you no argument for why you should see that, right? I mean, there's, right. No, there's no argument needed in logical space. I don't know why there's, there's an argument. No, I, well, actually, I... I- I fully agree with that because your example of the two plus two mm. equals four mm-hmm. is a something that is not actually a natural fact about the world. It's um, a logical truth or a mathematical truth uh, that does hold, as you say, in, in all times and places and for all objects. And I would want to say, and I think Parfit would have wanted to say, that the truth that agony is bad is also a self-evident truth. Mm. It's you know, yes, in a sense, of course, agony is a fact about the world, but we experience agony in a normative way, just as we experience pleasure in a normative way. When we have a really pleasurable experience, it comes with this normativity that this is welcome, this is good, and agony comes with the normativity that this is bad. So I would see that as, yes, an objective fact about the world, but a, a different kind of fact from the fact that you know we look at the world and we say there's you know there's there's gold in these rocks right that's a, a, a fact about the world but doesn't convey a value right. in itself right so uh, i i think parfit would have accepted that to the extent that he thinks that these are inherently normative judgments that, that we are capable of apprehending and and it's no less true even if we can see the context in which that narrow statement is overturned so you can say agony is bad except for the cases where it leads to something much better. So there can be some right. brief, brief, unavoidable agony that, that saves your life and allows you to experience you know, many more decades of pleasure, et cetera. Oh, certainly, yeah. 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 Agony is bad, but it is not uh, the only thing yeah. that is uh, bad. And it's, it's intrinsically bad, but possibly instrumentally it could, could do good. Yeah, but it's in, yeah. But it, it, again, held in a larger context where the well-being of conscious creatures is what we're still 
focused on, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think you and I yeah. are in full agreement on that one. Yeah. So how do you view par- the, the success or failure of Parfit's final project in On What Matters? Is that, did he accomplish what he was setting out to do there or, or not? I, th- I, think he, I think he made a strong case for the importance of for, for believing in objectivity in ethics and showed a, a possible way of doing that that was not really there or was not widely accepted and understood beforehand. I don't think that all of his arguments are sound. I mean, you know, Parfit thought his, his, the great project was to show, firstly, that there is objective truth in ethics, and secondly, to support this by suggesting that three major approaches to ethics, uh, consequentialism, Kantianism, and contractualism, converge in the same point, that the best, the best and most plausible varieties of these theories all lead to the same view. And you know, one of the, in those essays in, in Does Anything Really Matter, one of them that I contributed myself together with uh, Katarzyna de Lazari Ruddick, a Polish philosopher with whom I've written uh, a couple of books, we argued that Parfit is actually leaving aside act consequentialism and is only taking into account rule consequentialism and that it wasn't so easy to reconcile act consequentialism. Mm-hmm. And he tried to do, in the third volume, in his response, he did try to produce arguments to show that act consequentialism is not as far from the other ethical theories the, than, than one might think. But I, I don't think he was fully successful in that. So uh, in terms of reconciling all major moral theories to show that they lead to the same conclusion, I think that part of the book is a failure. But, but we don't have to conclude from that that the parts of the book arguing that there can be objective truth in morality is a failure. I, I think those parts stand on their own. Mm. I guess one final question, Peter. I know we're up against the, the hour and uh, perhaps the limits of a human bladder, <laughs> but um, you have this new book coming out, The Buddhist and the Ethicist. Yeah, I, I can imagine your focus there, but uh, tell me something about that book and what are the kinds of topics you touch. Yes, well, that book arose in a semi-accidental fashion, I suppose. I um, had the pleasure of meeting Shi Chao Wei, who is a uh, female Buddhist monastic. She doesn't particularly like being called a nun, but a female Mm. monastic from Taiwan um, or living in Taiwan. Um, And we met at a conference about animals because she thought that uh, one of the important ethical points of Buddhism is concern for all sentient beings and concern to reduce the suffering of sentient beings. And we had some interesting discussions there. And then she invited me back to Taiwan on another occasion to explore the differences between my secular a utilitarian viewpoint and her Buddhist viewpoint, not only in regard to the treatment of animals, but in regard to a whole range of different areas, starting with questions about the foundations of ethics um, and some of the key Buddhist concepts that she explains that I found difficult, like uh, karma and Mm. nirvana. But then we got on to a range of contemporary issues, um, such as the status of women and equality. Interestingly, uh, female Buddhist monastics are traditionally supposed to be subordinate to male Buddhist monastics. Yeah. And Shi uh, Wei uh, objects to this. And when the Dalai Lama came to visit Taiwan on one occasion, she and some supporters got up with large posters of these uh, edicts or statements about the subordination of female monastics to male ones and tore them up in front of the Dalai Lama on mm-hmm. the stage. So we talked about that. We talked about sexuality and uh, 
the idea that some Buddhists propose that we should be liberated from sexual desires, that that's a better life. So we, we discuss that, and we also discuss same-sex relationships and other aspects of sex- sexuality. Uh, we discuss uh, abortion and the use of embryos in research, where we did differ. Uh, we discussed euthanasia and, and suicide, where, again, we had some differences, but not as sharp, I think, as one might have expected. And we concluded by talking about the, the death penalty and about uh, war and, and killing in war. Mm. So it's, it's a series of dialogues in which we explore uh, differences and, and similarities on many aspects. And I hope that both Buddhists and secular ethicists will find it interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I look forward to reading that. Uh, I'll just note in passing that um, much of what Parfit wrote in Reasons and Persons was convergent with a, a Buddhist view of the self. He said some things about death and dying and his own attitude to it, which are, which are rather Buddhist. He said something like, having understood that personal identity is not a sort of on-off thing, but is a matter of degree, as, as he argued, um, he was less troubled about death because yeah. it would be a different stage. But um, you know, it was something that in one sense, his self was changing all the time. And that's certainly a, a Buddhist idea that um, everything is ephemeral, nothing is permanent. Yeah, well, so too with this conversation, Peter. <laughs> right. It's been very good for the ephemeral period that it's lasted. Um, yeah. I, I've enjoyed it, and I hope that, of course, it will last a little bit longer through uh, going out uh, on your podcast and being listened to by others. Yeah, well, until next time, Peter, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Always great to have you here. Thanks a lot, Sam. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks a lot.